Hey, welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I am Bo Sanders. So, welcome. Yes, we are glad that you are here. We have not done listener feedback in a while, so I thought that today would be a good day uh, to interact with some of the comments we've been getting at our various locations that people can give us feedback. But Randy, I want to say thank you to you for taking time out of a pretty big day for you. Happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to bed a young man last night and I woke up a senior citizen. You were telling me it's one of the monumental birthdays, like 21. It's one of the big ones. We we celebrate the number. Yeah, 65 is uh, sort of the senior status, right? That's where they you get all the discounts and uh, uh, people start thinking of you as a senior citizen, I guess. And yeah, and now I just got to think of myself in that way. That's uh, that's going to take some training. But, yeah, uh, that's interesting. And especially, you know, because you were, uh, you know, you were rock and roll uh, <laughs> in your youth and you probably, you know, viewed people of a certain age a certain way, I would guess. I don't know, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't give a lot of thought like most young people as to, you know, what it's going to be like when you're in your 60s and 70s. And um, I was, uh, you know, the there's a phrase and, you know, I know that you probably know it. Most millennials and Z's know, Gen Z's know it. It's, they say, okay, boomer. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, I, boomer. I'm familiar with like, the okay, boomer. <laughs> yeah. You, you gave us this messed up world, but, and, and while it's true, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm on the younger end of the boomers, um, but um, but I remember all that really well. Uh, we did give the world some stuff, right? Some good stuff, along with all the rest of the bad stuff. Um, and and I, I liken the boomer generation to the millennials right now because the as I've taught different ages throughout the years, you know, I see in the millennial generation right now um, a, a lot of really positive stuff, a lot of great cool. stuff. Um, uh, they, they, they don't need to brush up on their sarcasm. That's one of the things that, uh, you know, they, they could be a little more positive, a little more uh, complimentary. But, you know, there's there's a definitely a place for sarcasm and humor. And, but... Um, uh, but but I see a, a generation like my generation who said we don't want the paradigm that's been handed to us anymore. Mm. We we want we don't want to just change a few things. We want to change the whole paradigm, mm. and that's exciting. That's exciting because we we had that in the in you know among the boomers, um, the the whole you know hippie movement and um, you know the environmental movement. Really, you know, I mean, you can trace early pioneers of a lot of these things back to the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, you know, the beatniks and, you know, other things like that. But basically, when you talk about mass movements, you, you, the whole hippie movement, um, the Jesus people movement changed religion, you know, forever. Um, the uh, the women's movement, uh, the, definitely, a, you know, a, a lot of strikes forward there. Um, civil rights. Um, Earth Day, 
um, you know, rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, what a gift, you know, <laughs> to society. Um, you know, I didn't really like what the, you know, um, uh, Gen Xers did with it during the disco days. That was not really appropriate, but, uh, but I can appreciate a little bit of that. You know, um, the, uh, you know, we went from long hair to big hair, right. Uh, <laughs> flock, flock of seagulls and uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, remember the mullet. Uh, wait a minute. Do I still have a mullet? Let me. <laughs> a little bit. Business <laughs> up front, party in the back. Yeah. Like so, uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's, uh, I mean, Motown. What an incredible gift, right? Mm. Motown. Um, so, there's a uh, there, there's a lot of things that uh, that my generation have contributed, um, but we also uh, you know it was basically uh, um, rock and roll, free sex, and drugs. Right? That was like that's what the boomers are known for really, but there's a lot more than that. Um, and now they're starting to find out some of those, the drugs, you know, so what, you know, they were all medicines. They were just being abused. So, you know, I mean, you can use what's what we call drugs like peyote, psilocybin mushrooms, which are now, you know, becoming legal in Oregon, um, uh, marijuana, uh, et cetera. Those are all medicines when used in the right way. You know, those are all gifts from God to, to help people um, through various things. And so, yeah, even that kind of stuff, it's the abuse, right, that always is the, the culprit. And so, um, um, like I would call the abuse of rock and roll, screamo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, apologies to my youngest son. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so anyway... You know, um, it's a good time to reflect back and think about uh, kind of how I got here. And yeah, I was I was crazy, you know, no doubt about it. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I did the drug, sex, rock and roll thing up through my, you know, uh, uh, to my 20s and uh, my late teens anyway. Mm. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I've got now kids and grandkids and yeah you know community and uh, some land and uh you know a vision for my life and you know nobody's completely happy i'm not completely happy i don't think that what's what life's about it's that you find your happiness in on the journey right on the way and yeah. uh so anyway, yeah, so there's a little bit of my reflections from yeah. my 65th uh, years on this earth. Well, thank you. And I sure am glad that you were born. So I'm, thank you. I'm happy to be spending a little bit of time with you this morning. By the way, one of my favorite sayings is uh, with age comes wisdom, they say, but sometimes age shows up all by itself. <laughs> that could be the case for me. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, we have been getting some good listener feedback, and so I have rummaged through the four places that people sort of post and connect with us. So the first is I picked an email uh, that we want to talk about. 
I picked a Facebook comment on our Facebook page. Uh, somebody actually commented on the actual podcast itself right on our website. That's another way to connect. And then a third way is we have this, um, it's a small Facebook group, but it's for having conversations sort of out of the public view for more sensitive topics, or if people want to um, do that without their friends seeing what they've posted. And some, so there's some uh, specific names that I'll, I'll leave out, um, but I'll talk about those four ways that people can connect with us. But we have been getting uh, emails over at connect at piecingitalltogether.com. And Rachel, uh, I've been corresponding a little bit with her. And I wanted to ask you, Randy, I thought this would be a good thing uh, to reflect on um, today, is um, what do you do when you're not entirely aligned with the organization that you're a part of or that you were raised in or that you work for? Do you have any uh, insight in your reflecting on the various groups that you've been a part of, institutions, teaching organizations? What do you do when you're not exactly aligned with the group that you're a part of at the current moment? Do you leave and find a group that you resonate with or do you become a change agent? You got thoughts on this? Yeah. So I, I, I teach a class on transformation and systems and culture. Yeah. And uh, I think it all boils down to sort of, you get three, three options, right? You, you either stay in and become an influencer or uh, you go out and become an influencer from the outside because uh, those are two of the three. The the um, change doesn't just happen from the inside or from the outside. It really happens from both. Oh. And uh, and that that's the broad spectrum. So it's pressure from the outside and pressure from the inside. And if they can work together, that that's wonderful. Um, sometimes they work together. Sometimes they don't. And change still occurs. But uh, it's, it's sort of got to be both. Um, and the third option really is a, sort of a combination of the two that, that you push. So instead of just being an influencer, you mm -hmm. push so hard from the inside that they basically have to make you an outsider. Mm. So um, and uh, uh, you can get more change done using that way because you're drawing more attention to yourself and in your cause. Um, but it tends to blow up faster and all that sort of thing. So you got to deal with all that stuff. And, and then, um, but sometimes that's a leverage, uh, mm. like them making you an outsider is a leverage to prove your point. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, there's kind of three options, uh, that I see anyway. And, uh, that's generally how change occurs. I mean, it, it's, um, um, it, it rarely occurs from the top down. People who are in power um, tend to, to move towards homeostasis, which sure. means to keep everything the same because that's what's worked for them. That's what's yeah. working for all the people related to the system. Um, it's what keeps a paycheck coming in. Yeah. Um, it doesn't um, uh, alienate donors, uh, all those kinds of things. So, of course, people at the top generally want to maintain homeostasis, but uh, homeostasis, uh, if we've learned anything from nature, 
what we learn is that one, in order to be resilient, you have to adapt. Nature is resilient because nature adapts. Mm. And um, what we would call biomimicry principles, I guess, would be that, that humans are part of nature and that we have to also adapt in our systems. They, nothing ever stays the same, you know. Yeah. So um, in terms of s- systemic work, so uh, to, to change a system, you have to adapt. Um, the people who hold on the tightest are usually the people who lose the most. Mm. Uh, so, you know, learning to adapt and, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of, cause I've, I've been involved in systemic change in a lot of the institutions I've been employed at. I've taken all three, uh, sort of stances. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I found myself uh, out of jobs and fired because of my stand up for justice and, and I've also made lots of influence to other organizations that um, I can look back at and say, well, you know, because I was consistent in my influence, these changes have occurred. And then I've been on the outside pushing in and uh, drawn a lot of attention uh, to causes and different things. So, yeah, I've, I've sort of had experience in all three of those things. And, and it really, there's no one answer. It's mm. like you just have to decide what is the cost that you want to pay? So the least amount of cost you pay is as an inside influencer. Okay. And, you know, you may get some people talking about you and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, and as an outside influencer, you know, you, you, you may get notoriety that it might actually be like positive cost if that's what you're after or whatever. Um, you get press and you get things like that. But that center position, which is where I found myself in most often, um, is you pay the highest cost. Hmm. And um, so it depends on what people are willing to pay. Sometimes it may not be worth it. Oh, that's really interesting. I have been thinking a lot about this lately, um, recalling a conversation that uh, I had the year I was a visiting professor, uh, a senior academic pulled me aside and gave me some really interesting advice saying, you know, you, you don't want to be uh, working against the organization from the inside, that that's just a bad place to be. Because for instance, when you come up for something like, you know, review, if you have a annual job performance review, or if you're a part of a tenured program or something like that, um, you know, it's going to work against you anyway. So you, you want to find an organization, if you can, that you're not working against it from the inside because it'll backfire. And I don't know if that's good advice or not, but I, I certainly took it to heart. And I know that this person has been a person who has lived um, what they preach and has actually been a person of influence and has actually, you know, overcome some... Um, you know, had to go through a heresy trial and stood his ground. And, um, you know, that that has been something that he lives, that it's not a theory. But I I always think about if that was good advice or not. Yeah, and it also depends on who you are. I mean, if you're white, you get a lot more room. Mm. Um, And so, you know, you can have, you you get the privilege of of having – um, more flexibility and more chances and all those kinds of things. So, hmm. um, do you think that's but, still, do you think that's still true? 
One of the things I've yeah. been wondering about is, especially with, say, an institutions like whether it's a denomination or a school or a business um, that because diversity is a, a, an emphasis and a priority right now that um, people of color or women of color seem to be able to, because they're desired, you need them and you don't want to alienate them as a, a leadership that they seem to be able to have some unique ability to speak to issues. So um, it's still a case of we'll allow you to say these things. Okay. Um, you know, in, in this, because white folks aren't used to hearing from people of color, yeah. uh, uh, challenge them and those kinds of things. It seems very novel right now. Right. Interesting. But if you look at still who's holding all the power. Yeah. You look at your denominations, who, who's in charge. Yeah. Um, look at your uh, look at the, the you, you mentioned um, uh, colleges and universities. Yeah. Uh, you know, only 11 percent are people of color. Um, and six uh, percent of those are Asian. Four mm. percent uh, of those are black. Uh, the rest are Latina, and then there's a small percentage, like point, you know, whatever percent is Native American. So, um, and then uh, uh, if you looked at uh, administrators, it would, uh, like, t head administrators, top administrators, there's probably not even, not, you know, I'm just guessing, right? Um, but I'm guessing there's not even 1% um, throughout. So, so it's still who are making, people are saying things, people of color are are, are saying stuff and and yeah there there's this sort of like like hesitancy to be rude and say you you know we we don't want to stop them from saying this but we need to control it right and and so there are various ways that these things are controlled and um you know uh, that that's it's so so it's still a thing of you know like we're being handled mm. right? We're not equal at the table. Okay. Um, and, and, I, and I've heard, you know, even uh, my colleagues, uh, I heard a colleague one time say, I don't even tell white people to, to go on to, to uh, get a uh, PhD and teach because there's not going to be any positions. Well, you know, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. If you just look <laughs> at the statistics, huh. you know, we, we, like huh. to, we like to dream that these things are actually happening but um, in reality, uh, things are still much the same as they were. We're just beginning to see a little bit of crack in the dike. Interesting. Well, that brings us pretty well to uh, a second response we got. This one was from Eric, and he commented on our Facebook page. Um, after listening to us talk about uh, bias, uh, brought up the, the idea of intersectionality. And uh, for his perspective, specifically dealing with um, disabilities, uh, if you are a person who finds yourself in a wheelchair, that you have something to say about the, the ableist, the able uh, priority. And so you had a good response to him uh, about that there is a place for intersectionality, but his 
concern was specifically something you said, which is let the people of color be the experts on something like race. And mm -hmm. so we got lots of people sort of either questioning that or raising their eyebrows saying, wow, that seems like a, a, a really um, harsh stance. So, yeah, explain why, because I don't get it. Uh, so even when you said it, even though as much as the, I get to be in dialogue with you, even when you said it, there was something about it that was, I think, eye-opening, which is that as much as, say, white people might be able to get woke and to open their eyes towards issues of race, that because it hasn't been their lived experience, that they don't have an inherent ability um, to conceptualize it or to see it, it can be like a, a learned lens through which they view things, but they'll always speak with an accent. It, they're not fluent. It's not their native hmm. tongue. Hmm. Yeah, well, and part of this is just that whole breakdown of Western worldview, right? So it's like knowledge of something doesn't equal expertise. Hmm. Lived experience plus knowledge equals expertise. And so uh, if you don't have the lived experience, you, you can't be the expert. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I've been listening to this thing uh, from a while ago. Um, I, by the way, I found an old iPod that I hadn't, I'd lost, I'd lost track of, <laughs> and uh, I've been listening to it again and just so enjoying um, finding stuff I haven't heard in 10 years. And one of the things was an address by our friend, Brian McLaren, and um, somebody had talked to him about this idea of first order activities and then a second order reflection. So, but the primary thing is to act, what you do. So, for instance, being generous, right, or giving towards charity. That's the primary activity, first order. But the second order later, reflection on that is, say, a theory of the economy, or analyzing the disparity uh, in our economics. You can have a theory about it, but the activity has to be primary. And that was just one of his examples. And I've really been thinking about, like for instance, prayer. Prayer is a primary activity for people of faith. Understanding prayer or having a theory about how it works or why it works or something, that's secondary. You don't have to understand something in order to participate in it, right? And for it to be effective in your life. And that's mm -hmm. just something I've been really thinking about, but specifically about this issue of, of race and awareness of racial issues. If you are coming to that through a theory-based entrance, let's say, mm -hmm. your entry point is through knowledge, that's not the same as lived experience because one is primary and the other is a secondary reflection. Okay. Just something I've been thinking. Yeah. About. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I got, you know, um, it, it, it's helpful, I guess, for some people to break it down that way for me, it makes it more confusing, but I'm just <laughs> saying like, 
you know, walk your talk and, and then, you know, let your mind catch up to what you're doing. You, uh, you know, it's uh, like when I was studying for my MDiv in, uh, at uh, what was then called Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary, now Palmer Seminary, um, <clears throat> I, I learned a lot of stuff, right? And I remember thinking, I got to be able to use this stuff. I got to be, you know. Uh, I need somewhere to use this uh, stuff. And so they teach you theory and all these things. And then they give you some opportunities to do practical stuff, but unfortunately not as much at the same time. But so, so I, I remember learning and we were just talking about systems. So I'm going to use that as an example. I had a, a class called system dynamics in congregational life. Mm. Right. So it was using systems theory to look at your congregation and systems, psychological uh, uh, assessment to look at your congregation and understand it as a system, right? So, um, so I, I took notes on all that and everything, and then I became a pastor later, right? So I, I remember my second year as a pastor, and I was like, you know, wow, why didn't anybody ever teach me some of the stuff I needed to know now, right? Mm -hmm. And then later on, I, I went through some old notebooks, and I'm like, oh, they did teach me. It's just that I didn't have an outlet for it. It was all knowledge. It was all head knowledge, right? And so um, mm. without the opportunity to exercise the things that I'm learning, um, it was irrelevant. It didn't, it didn't translate into reality. Mm. And so, um, you know, and that's when I began to really question, like, you know, what is this Western learning system about then if they teach you head knowledge and then they tell you to go do it and then you got to sort of like, put them together from like years apart and whatever. No, a, uh, a, a sort of apprenticeship is a much better model where you can learn and do at the same time. Yeah. This is too uh, elaborate for today, but I'll just mention that, you know, in, in my field of practical theology, the fact that that has to be a field at all is interesting, but um, you know, the, the term praxis gets thrown around a lot that it's reflective practice but, you know, it really is quite a cycle because if you start with theory, then you practice it and then you reflect on it. That's a very different exercise than a, that if you begin with the practice and then reflect on it and then theorize about it. I mean, depending on how you sequence that learning cycle can be very, very different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I learned by the, the, the second way that you mentioned. That's how I learn best. I, I learn by doing and then thinking about what I'm doing and what, how it relates to the bigger picture of things. Hmm. Well, the reason that Eric brought this up, I'll just mention this, is he had a good point, which is if you are a person who is disabled or differently abled, you have experienced some kind of discrimination. But that doesn't translate one-to-one -one, apples to apples to then for you to understand say discrimination in areas of race and you were saying that there's an intersection an intersectionality that that can inform that but that they're not the same thing and so one doesn't automatically translate to the other right yeah and uh, you know i you know as a as i get older um, I, I come to realize that we're all only able-bodied for so long. Mm. I mean, if you get through life being able-bodied your whole life, you are extremely fortunate. 
But, um, you know, as we get older, more things happen. If, if, if we're not born disabled or if we're not having an accident that make us disabled, eventually you're going to be somewhat disabled, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it, it behooves us to understand from uh, people uh, who are disabled. And by the way, this is National Disability Month, July. Oh. Uh, didn't know if you knew that. I didn't. So I'm glad we're talking about this yeah. now. Um, and uh, to, to listen and to hear what they have to say, because, you know, we, we tend to create this, these categories of the other. And then when we do that, it makes people less of persons. Mm -hmm. And so, um, we need to understand the personhood of people Mm -hmm. who go through things differently than what we do. Yeah. My wife lives with chronic illness and it has been an education in itself being a partner with her and, Um, I just am horrified at how blind I am to so many things that without her experience and her walking me through and explaining some things to me that I just wouldn't know or understand. So, Hey, a third listener comment that I wanted to touch on, uh, Amy actually commented on one of our, Uh, the podcast post, you can just comment in the show notes below. She brought up the idea of implicit bias and asked a really straightforward question, which is, is it wrong to have biases? Like if you have, you prefer pizza over Chinese food, that's right. You have a bias. Is it inherently wrong to be biased? What would you say to that? I would say it's inherently human to be yeah. biased. Yeah. Um, but uh, if we're not willing to examine our biases, then it is wrong. Mm. Yes. Interesting. So like the unexamined life, the unexamined bias, that's where the danger lies. Right. We, that's why we need each other. Yeah. Um, we, we all are biased uh, in one way or another. Um I, I, I think, um, yes, uh, and it's all not as uh, innocuous as Chinese food over pizza. Ah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so it, some of it is, uh, affects a lot more people and our communities and ourselves and our families. And so uh, that's why it behooves us to, to listen to one another. That's why we're here on Earth in community so that we can learn from one another and we can hear one another and we can appreciate one another and even embrace the differences. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so we work this out in community and that's why community is so important. Yeah. You know, in that episode, I had rolled out uh, to you something I'd been working on in my little workshop of my mind about uh, this, this threefold thing to help people understand where they're coming from. One is to what, what do you prefer? What do you, to what do you refer? And then what's being deferred, what's being deferred and right. Right. And helping people to name their preferences is actually, I'm finding a really helpful thing. Like if you have a young person and like you prefer that they don't right? if you're going to hire a young person, I mean, that they don't have neck tattoos or knuckle tattoos or that they pull up their pants or that 
blah, 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 right? That's your preference. So let's name it and then let's talk about it. Because until something is uh, accounted for, it can't be addressed. Right. Exactly. Hey, the last one, we may not spend a lot of time on today because it's sort of a bigger topic, but I did want to bring it up. Jana is one of our best uh, listeners as far as feedback goes. She's just a wonderful, yeah, she's fantastic. And we appreciate uh, her feedback and and helpful. She is a great resource. She's always finding interesting things and sending our way. She was hoping that we could talk maybe today we might have to do this on a a future episode, but about this idea of uh, shared or equaled relationships between men and women and getting away from this patriarchal male dominated relationship that we, so many of us have been, uh, have inherited uh, do you have any insight about moving towards a more shared relationship of, of equal? Well, I need to, I need to know more about what what we're asking here. Okay, do Randy, I apologize for asking such a generic question. In her actual note, there were a lot of specific details that I didn't want to uh, say, you know, broadcast widely. But what I'll do is I will forward it to you and we can consider addressing it in a future episode in more detail, but I didn't want to broadcast the specifics. Um, So I apologize for asking a very open-ended question. You know, I I think that we have to also examine these things from various cultural perspectives. Hmm. It's not sort of one answer for all people. It's Hmm. what, what does that mean in what culture and what can we learn from various cultures uh, as we translate these things back and forth? Um, you know, some, some, it may be, there may be something wrong with it. Others, there may not be something wrong with it. So um, this is a really big topic. Uh, okay. And um, I, I've always had a little bit of trouble with the, uh, what I understand as the, uh, this is why I prefer the womanist movement over the feminist movement. Yeah. Because the feminist movement tends to be in a place where it says we want everything equal. And I understand equal pay. Yes, absolutely. Equal respect, equal promotions, equal, all of those kinds of things in those roles. But, um, but there are in other cultures, different roles that people play in those roles those cultures want to keep them in place, not because they're oppressive, um, one oppressing the other, but um, because that that's how they've worked it out over time. And they have all these relationships and equalities and equities, et cetera, worked out. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a big mm. question um, and yeah, probably deserves a lot more time. But one of the things that we can sort of uh, lay as a template across all cultures is, are people getting equal respect? Are they given equal dignity? Is there equal personhood involved? Is, is there equal value to what each plays? Those are sort of some, some templates we can lay across and say, this is right. This is always right. Um, now, how that plays itself out culturally may be different. 
Listeners, thank you so much for your feedback. I also wanted to mention that we do have, it hasn't been very active lately, but we do have a private Facebook group. There's only 21 members, but if you'd like to join that, just go to our Facebook page and request to be a part of that and we can let you in. And that's where some stuff is shared that's not for public consumption. So if you'd like to be a part of that, otherwise you can just post on our Facebook page. You can email us, connect at piecingitalltogether.com. You can comment right on the podcast episode itself, and we get all of that. And uh, from time to time, we will address it in an episode like this. But we want to thank you, and specifically our Patreon supporters who support us financially. If you would like to do that, you can do that through patreon.com. We just want to say thank you, everybody, for sharing these episodes, for giving us feedback, and for your ongoing support. And, and I want to interrupt this closing to say one more thing. <laughs> um, you know, we need to recognize that we are two men who are sitting here talking about this question. And, uh, and there is definitely a, a voice absent from the table. So maybe we should actually have Jana come on and uh, uh, we deal with this issue, um, you know, uh, together uh, and, and, and make an episode of it. Pretty good idea. It's a really good idea. Well, until next time, be strong, our sisters and brothers of every color. That's Cornell. (laughs) In every gender. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. Peace out.